Steve Edison for the Movement Podcast. Podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're going to hear again from Jeff Sundell on what it takes to pioneer movements in a Western setting. In the previous session, Jeff talked about Fields 1 and 2, how to connect with people far from God and how to share the gospel. Today we're in Fields 3 and 4 to train new disciples, and how to help new disciples in churches. Jeff, uh, walk us through what you've got in field three and four, and then we'll probably have a lot more questions. Okay. Um, again, just sort of, uh, I'm sure you guys have talked about the three-thirds process, but um, I've been trying to say, find a good way to say, you know, stick to the three-thirds process. But... If it looks like you're teaching the three-thirds process, you're probably not doing the three-thirds process, if that makes sense. Um, I, I, I was watching, um, I was in West Palm a couple weeks ago, and a three-week-old believer um, walked me through, um, I think, the Repent and Believe command of Jesus. And um, the, the guy who was doing it, the executive pastor, said, he said, we don't do the three-thirds process. And, you know, when they got done, I said, no, you do the three-thirds process. You're just doing it right. I said, you you, you had all the elements there. Um, and, and that's, to me, that's really, if, if you're having to be real mechanical, you're probably overdoing it. it. It ought to be just so innate in the process. You know, so do you have that, that, that caring? Do you have that, um, you know, the highs and lows from the past week? Do you have the accountability? Hey, did you get to share your story? Did you? How did you grow last week? And, and, you know, and then your whatever the new teaching ought to be so integrated into the process. Um, you know, so anyhow, this young believer who was three weeks old, he, he taught me, uh, uh repent and believe. He did a m- magnificent job. Um, he only knew three commands. He didn't know any, actually, the first thing they asked me, he said, ask him anything in the Bible. And so I said, who's Moses? And tell me about Moses. He said, I don't know who Moses is. I said, well, tell me about David. He said, I don't know who David is. I said, tell me what you know. He said, I know the three circles. I know the, about the woman who went to Jesus' feet, the eunuch, and I know the Samaritan woman. He said, that's all I know. I said, awesome, man. And, you know, and, but he was, you know, he taught me the three-thirds process, but he didn't know he was doing it. So I hope that makes sense. But that's, when we find people over, uh, I don't know. They're so worried about being legalistic to the three thirds process that the, they sort of missed the point. Um, cause the point of accountability is, Hey, are you helping share the gospel, help grow the kingdom? The point of obeying Jesus isn't just for the sake of obeying Jesus. The point is you grow in character and integrity and this transforming and changing your life. That's why the three thirds process is so powerful. So. Stick to the three thirds, um, you know. But uh, I, I think it, you ought to integrate it as much as possible. Um, the other thing, um, we just put an emphasis as much as possible. Never go anywhere alone. Uh, take take people with you. Everything's two by two as much as possible. Uh, training and equipping new people as you go. So try and do as much. Just never go anywhere alone is sort of a mantra. Um, New believers start new churches. Um, I'll talk about this a little later on, but we, we really just, we haven't had lost people, you know, when they come to Christ 
so far go, no, man, I'm not going to be a church. I don't want to do that. You know, we're just sort of like when they come to Christ, they're like, OK, what do we do? And, and we've not had a lot of pushback. What they push back against is going to church. So when we try, that, that's where we find we've got to be a lot slower is if we got if we're going to win people to Jesus, disciple them. If you're going to invite them to church, you got to back that way up. But we, we just haven't got a lot of. So anyhow, new believers start new churches. Um, your discovery Bible study tool. You know, so we I, I in particular use the sword method. Others use an SOS. Adapt the tool for your context. So, for example, I can say, what is sin? And in Booger Holler, North Carolina, man, that works. You know, people know what sin is in Booger Holler, North Carolina. If we go out to, you know, in the West, in the U.S., we go up to Portland or Washington. Yeah, you'll find, say, man, dude, I've never sinned in my life. You know, don't accuse me of sin. I've never done that. You know, and so you got to so adapt your discovery Bible study tool according to your context. Adapt the questions, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, and, and so you're going to have to. The other thing that goes hand in hand with adapting the discovery Bible study tools, adapt the content for the local culture. Um, I think one of the reasons uh, the guys in um, well, Ronnie's seeing so much traction in the inner city with discipleship is uh, they're using TRT, and they're using it in an oral form. Now, TRT is training rural trainers, and it's it's because you're dealing with an oral context that's probably fear-based um, and is very different than our community, say, in the suburbs. And so they adapted the content, and they adapted the tools for the context. Um, in the same way, when we're in West Palm, uh, we're, we've put some of the seven stories of hope in the commands of Christ because they seem to work better in that context. People didn't, let's say they didn't uh, click as well with Zacchaeus, but the woman who goes to the feet of Jesus, now we're still teaching repent and believe. We're just adapting the content to the local culture. So we, we just, we're seeing guys do it a couple different ways according to local culture. Um, but the big thing is only use in that area, only use one, one way though, you know, so, but we're finding multiple adaptations are working in multiple contexts in the U S. Um, what you're saying is, um, you're, the guys are picking different content for the four fields. Like Ronnie's using training rural trainers developed in China for a rural context, telling stories, not reading anything, but it's working in the inner city. The guys in West Palm Beach, for their short-term discipleship, have been using seven commands, but now they're inserting the stories of the seven hopes to teach those seven commands, is what you're saying. But if I heard you right, you're getting culturally appropriate content, but you're still giving guys one way to do it in that context so they don't get confused. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, um, Gary Stump and, um, oh, another guy out in Nebraska. John Mark. They're using something very, yeah, yeah, John Mark. John Mark. They're using lessons very similar to Ying's, and, and they're seeing multiplication. So, so, again, we're seeing different, you know, it's just the big thing is have a set of tools you use. Use them a lot. Use them often. 
we are, you know, and it, it, if you, if you work them, they work, you know, so you, you can't bail on them real quick and then go, Hey, I'm going to go try this. You, you keep working. Um, the other, the other thing, which I've already mentioned earlier in evangelism is mall model assist, watch and leave. It's, it's really built into the three thirds process, but if you're discipling somebody and let's say by about week six, week seven, you're still leading all the groups and you haven't gotten that local person to begin leading the storytelling, the discovery Bible study, then you're not doing mall. And so what we're finding is the guys who really are seeing generational growth within three, four, five weeks, the local folks are already starting to lead those groups and the outsider is more an observer, keeping things moving and focused around the three thirds. Now, he may be doing some shadow pastoring in the back. But if, if a guy's led it nine months, we usually don't see any of the groups multiply. Clint has people within four weeks are leading these groups. And we're just seeing that over and over again. That That's the guys that then go out and multiply as the ones who've been mauled in their group. You know, for this to work, everybody's got to be part of two groups. So when they've been mauled in their group, they will go maul in the next group. And it's, and again, it's built into three thirds process. Um, the other one that uh, we picked up from Chuck Wood that was very helpful is seven short term discipleship commands, not lessons. Um, the, the emphasis being a command is very different than a lesson. Um, sometimes it could be semantical, but we've found with an emphasis on commands seems to be helpful where lessons might be something you do and you, you do six weeks of them. And then, Hey, what are the next six lessons? That's a bit of a, at least an American culture thing, um, that we just, we had to move away from these or lessons and emphasize commands. Um, minimum nine months, long-term discipleship via a discovery study process reading large chunks of scripture as they go. So start out small, but try to get them reading, say, two chapters a day. So that nine months, learning how to do long-term discipleship via Discovery Bible Study is really important. So that's sort of uh, field three. You want me to dive into field yeah, four? Yeah, let's just pause here. So we've been in field three a bit. Any questions about anything that Jeff just mentioned? I think everybody's kind of itching to know what you're going to do with field four. Yeah, I, I, can I just ask? Yeah. Just going back, Jeff, this is Tim. It's great to see you. Um, hey, Tim. The commands versus lessons. Can you just tell us a little bit about what the implication then of that is in terms of how fast you're moving through that content and what it is people are looking for? What, what percentage of the group are you looking to be obeying? or attempting to obey that command before you move on to another command. And maybe just a little bit more about the, the difference between the lesson concept and the command and what that does in the heart and mind and the expectation of the new believer in the group. Yeah, a hey, great question. Um, yeah, in essentially the emphasis of what we found with lessons is we were plowing through the seven commands of Christ um, or the seven stories of hope, and we were doing the lessons, but we really, we were getting through them, and, and we were missing the point, which is there is a side of, hey, you need to be discipling other people, and you, you need to be growing, for, growing personally, because the command of Christ is meant to 
transform, to metamorphosize, to change your life. And so what, what we began to just sort of emphasize, sort of pick this up again from Chuck Wood was um, shoot for about 51%, just the majority, a minimum majority of your group is at least attempting to obey. They are obeying. They have gone out and they love the neighbor. They went out and they shared the gospel. They went out and prayed with the neighbor, whatever it may be. But they they literally uh, at least 50 percent of the group is a bank where the lesson there, there was sort of an assumption that, hey, this is more of a knowledge that I'm, I'm growing in knowledge. And when I get enough knowledge, then maybe I should be doing something here. And so the emphasis on the command sort of takes it back. There's an expectation that you the rubber meets the road. You're going to go implement this. So does that does that help? So about 50 plus percent. If not, you take them back through the commands of Christ again. And uh, it would just be like going back and whatever lesson you're using, you make them do that command again. Um, if it was just a lesson, you would do it and move on. A command, we're going to keep doing it till you do it. Well, I think, Jeff, you're not saying that they leave the group, right? No, 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 not at all. No, we would encourage them actually to stay in the group, but you would just start getting people in the group to lead it in front of you. That way you can check the DNA of the three thirds. You can see they're comfortable leading. You're there also to make you're helping. They get the right. You're helping them work and get the right interpretation of scripture. So we want you there nine months discipling. We just don't want you necessarily leading it every week for nine months. We're trying to raise up other trainers. And essentially the mall is occurring within the group while you are there. And the reason being is because then when everybody's part of two groups, um, if everybody's part of two groups, you have the potential multiplication. They are likely to take the mall process and take it down to the next group and do the same thing, which is going to, it just we say it's like responsibilities like fertilizer. So as you're given responsibilities, fertilizer for growth, but they're getting to do it in a safe context of their group. Okay, that's or good. Or their church, whatever it may be. Gerard, and then we're going to go to field four. Yeah. If you're starting with believers, uh, teaching them some of the same courses, but it sounds like if they new believers, you'll be teaching them something and they're going to do it. We're starting with believers. We do sometimes have to go through this, explain to them the whole four, four things so they, they know, you know, where things are yeah. leading. Um, because I found that with believers, I'm, I started to share the first field and Get them. I, I thought we would dwell in there for a while to get them right, but then a few of them they start to go out. Of course, they start to meet people, and suddenly I realized, well, I haven't told them really what to do with people when they find them. 
And so there are people jumping ahead all the time. Would you go through the whole thing with believers? So would you give would you give your believers a four fields overview before you jump in, or would you just jump in? Um, man, we're we are we're debating. The the guy that really has the great the, the best track record right now, as far as I know of in the U.S. with believers, are one of the best track records. At least let's say a four year track record, where year in year out he's seen multiplication. NC State University is Burke Wilson, and one thing Burke did differently with believers versus non Christians is he takes them through five of the commands of Christ. And essentially on the fifth command, so the first four commands, so they, they meet a college student, he's part of their church, you know, they're only there for a season. They've never been discipled in their lives, so he literally takes them through repent and believe. Now some of them end up coming to Christ during repent and believe. He takes them through the baptism, I think he takes them through prayer, um, I think that he takes them through love God, love your neighbor, and then the fifth one he does to make disciples one. So he lets them sort of get warmed up ahead of time with learning the T for T process. And then essentially that's week five. So week five, week six, he teaches them their story, oikos and the gospel week five and six. And, and, and like I said, he's just got the best track record I've seen because they'll go, you know, bad thing is diversity. You got to start over every year, but they went over, they, they hit right at a hundred, um, home groups this year, starting with lost people. And um, and they're seeing, uh, they see, saw about nine streams. They were at seven streams back in uh, November of fourth generation disciples. Um, so that's, I sort of like that one because it helps address what you're talking about. It lets them, lets them get up and running with the T4T process and get moving, getting used to it, get used to the storytelling the obedience-based discipleship, the accountability, but it, it allows them to be up, ready to go up and running. Um, so, um, yeah. So experiments. Well, so Jeff, let's do this because I'm watching the time and I really want to make sure we get to field four and what are the things you have to share with us because um, uh, that's kind of been a touch point in the U.S. Yeah. Um, the 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 big thing we we found we we've transitioned in the past two years. Um, probably Steve, when you came over and helped us do that mid level in Austin, I think a lot of us um, we had placated um, on the word church and sort of had bought into what was cool missional community disciple making groups whatever was sexy right then you know, and so we were just trying to appease you know, but what we when we really looked at all the all that push we were getting from was coming from Christians, and so what we what we began to find is the attitude of the practitioner, the T for T practitioner, affects the church. So it'd be the same way if I if I came to you guys and I say, hey, here's my wife Angie, and here's my daughter Abigail, here's my son Kale, and I want you to meet my daughter down here. She's she's adopted. We, we hadn't named her yet, but she goes on vacation with her. We love her. We care about her. She lives under our roof, and we're going to take care of her. She, she's our daughter, but we haven't named her yet. 
Well, my daughter doesn't even like me to share that. If she were here right now, I wouldn't be sharing this because she'd be upset. Um, because what's missing? Well, what's missing is called identity. And so when my daughter hears that illustration, she gets angry with dad, you know, because that name, Miriam Sundell, um, it, it gives her identity. We, we prayed about that name. We worked through that name and she's carrying on my family name. I even joke and tell her, you're going to be one of those hyphenated, you know, people, you know, you're going to be the woman that's a Sundell hyphenated, you know, you're not giving up that name. We need some boys, you know, you gotta, we want more boys running around with a Sundell name, but just to say that the practitioner affects what that group's identity is. And so what we're finding is when the practitioner calls them church, refers to them church from day one, they have the expectation to be church. And when we called them groups and, um, and we got, we got a two year track record on this, a two year track record. We called them groups, missional communities, um, life groups, C4 groups, all the cute names are, we lost about 90% of the groups. They'd had about a, they'd have a nine month life. We, near as we, we've counted well over a thousand groups. We started with lost people lost. Well, if I compare that where we started churches from day one, like Chuck Wood and Chuck Wood skipped the, the sexy thing and he just went straight for church. And so he was planting churches from day one among lost people. They had, I can't, I want to say it's 264. I'm not sure if I got the number exactly right in my head right now, but 264 of those churches still exist. And they started 331 plus churches. So that means they lost, uh, what, 40, 50? Well, that's not that, that's pretty good actually, you know, because Every church plan in the U.S., it's only one in six, seven succeed. So we feel like there's a lot to identity. And um, so right now there's a two-year track record of calling disciple-making groups with a 90% attrition rate. There's a two-year track record, two-and-a-half-year track record now of calling them church, and our attrition rate is very low. And um, And so we've, as a network, have shifted as much as we can. We can't anybody um, but we've shifted much to identity to column church up front after identity though you've got to build the dna the dna comes through your short-term discipleship your discipleship should move you to church formation church function what we would call the acorn church the dna of the basics of the church but so there's three parts of church formation there's the identity that comes from the practitioner casting identity on the group. Then the DNA comes through the Acorn Church, which is the disciplers discipling the DNA in. The, the last piece that we really want is healthy, mature churches. Healthy, mature churches really come as you identify Timothys and leaders in the church and you give invest them more time in. Your Timothys will help your churches move in maturity. So there's got to be a time where you're investing more time with more people, well, less people. So more time with less people, and they help move the churches into maturity. So three stages to church formation, identity, the acorn church, which is driven by your short-term discipleship, and then healthy church, which is really when you're, you're finding those Timothys that you're investing even more in. Um, 
and you're giving them more of your time. So do you guys remember when we did the church circles and we put things in that order of priority? You had first the, char- the covenant identity, second, then to help them develop the characteristics of a church, and then last, those caring leaders you know, that, that provide stability and long-term maturity for the church. It's essentially the same thing as what we're talking about here. Acorn Church, Jeff, you're just basically saying it's a church in formation. They're learning to become a full-fledged, healthy church. Yeah, basic DNA is there, but it's still, we wouldn't say it's mature by any means. It could could definitely, um, it hasn't gotten to a healthy church. Leadership's not been identified. It's not self-feeding yet, um, so it's lacking some key, key components to being a healthy church. All right. But it has all the potential to become church. All right, we've got another question here. What's the identification of the church versus a new church that's been formed? Is it an extension of the church where you're from, or is it the church in Dolph Street? Or everywhere you go, people want you to identify with the church. Coming here, I was asked, what church are you involved with? So, what, how would they identify with what church their church? Yeah, well, we, we put a heavy, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things. We, one, we actually encourage those, those little acorn churches to actually name themselves. Um, because you get that question, Hey, where do you go to church? Well, Hey, we're part of the gathering. Oh, okay. Where's that? Oh, well, it's over, you know, but we actually, it's part of the identity piece. We actually encourage it. But the other, the other question that may be there is, um, we, we live in a mixed context where we have traditional churches, multi-site churches, mega churches, country churches, and then we have apostolic guys who are all planting churches. So some might see themselves much more of a part of a, say, a network. Um, a lot of them would actually see them part of something called we call No Place Left. A lot of them would actually sort of identify with No Place Left. But then, you know, some, for instance, um, uh, Christ the Rock is a church of 600 people that has started 23 churches a mile away, all homes, all multiplying, eight second generation churches. Um, big thing is it's a different inner city and suburb, the suburbs. And the inner city folks would not come to the suburban church. So they went over there and planted churches. So the goal of the Christ the Rock Church is those become independent, healthy um, churches. But they have some of the people, you know, of course, that help start those churches, help win those people to Christ, baptize them, disciple them, are still part of Christ the Rock. Um, you know, so they're they're literally part of two churches. And so there's a bit of a, I guess you can see there could be a little bit of confusion on identity right there. Because um, some of those folks would see themselves as part of Christ's Rock. Some of them would all—they would also, hey, we're part of this local church over here, that's in the inner city, um, and they're literally part of two churches. But they're under the um, in that case, they're all more or less under the umbrella of Christ the Rock. But their goal is Christ the Rock's goal is these become independent, um, healthy churches separate from Christ the Rock. That's their goal. But. Everybody we're working with has different goals when it comes to that. So I, it's hard to say. Yeah. But I, giving it a name helps with identity. But again, it's going to vary according to context as to who started them. All right. Tim's got a question. 
Jeff, I can remember just a few years ago reading very well written, very well argued, lengthy papers on why we could never see these kind of movements in Western countries like the U.S. Could you give me give us some sort of sense of what the breadth of this is across the U.S. Uh, most recently in terms of generations of churches, how many streams, how how broad is it at, at present? Yeah, um, what I, I really, you know, Tim, you probably know this. Um, I really like to part of what we when we talk about the fifth field, um, we've tried to redefine success in America because if we we say, hey, we have X amount of churches, X amount of baptisms that falls in the normal. And I'm using the word success very, very poorly because I hate to even use that word. We're trying to redefine success as multiplying streams of fourth generation churches that are growing in Christ likeness. And that's really how we're trying to define success. But we're, we feel like as far as churches go, we're well past 30 streams of fourth generation churches uh, very easily just within the network we know. Um, there are two other networks. Um well, there's, there's two or three, I guess there's probably three other networks sort of emerging, and a lot of them are seeing similar results. Um, as far as disciple-making streams, uh, we're well up past 50 streams of fourth-generation disciples. Um, uh, and it's starting to happen a little more rapidly now, and you, know, and you, you pinch yourself because you want to be real careful, but West Palm went October year to January, they got they moved to five streams of fourth and fifth generation disciples in essentially a four month period. And we've never seen that kind of rapid growth before and um, or exponential growth, however you want to describe it. So um, and it, there's another network that I'm familiar with in the U.S., um, the guy down in Tampa Bay, Florida works with a friend of ours named Curtis and they're, they're seeing, they're seeing some incredible results for multiplication. So I don't know if that helps answer it real well. Um, with church plants, we figure well over, well, what I say 260. So about 320 is where we were guessing we were at. Um, the best we from generational maps. Um, it, sometimes it's, it's hard to get everybody to commit to say, is this a church? Is this a group? You know, that kind of thing. But we're shooting for church the majority of the time. Um, but we can't guarantee that with every single partner. Um, last year, 2014, we saw over 3,000 baptisms in our network. Um, I, I don't, again, I don't know on the others, but um, so that, that would give you a, a, a rough idea of where it was. Um, but we try and downplay. We really try and emphasize the 4G discipleship and 4G uh, multiplication of churches because that's, um, that's what's going to change the direction of uh, Christendom uh, here is going to be multiplication of disciples. Jeff, let me, let me stop you here. I know we're out of time, but I, I, I want you not to miss what he just said. Um, in Western context, traditionally, we've identified success by our church planting. What you're hearing them saying is we're identifying success by downstream generational growth. 
And when we see a different DNA catch on, we have a sense that this is truly what's going to get us past the birth rate, get us past the immigration rate, and get us to actually transforming our society. So this is huge. Jeff, I know we're out of time, but do you have any closing thoughts, anything you just say? I, I meant to say that, and you need to hear this before I get offline. Um, man, you know, the big thing, I guess, is... Um, I didn't get to really emphasize it, but the, the emphasis of the, the mid-levels, spending 60 to 90 days a year with your Timothys, um, mid-levels have been transformational for our whole network. Um, that's been where we've been able to make, get back to church, get to multiplication. And, and every time we talk to the guys, they'd say mid-levels made a huge difference when they learned how to essentially use four fields and generational mapping uh, to troubleshoot, but then also cross-pollinating with other people because they felt so alone, um, so weak. You, you feel like it's going to all fall apart, but those mid-levels have just been huge for folks to come together. You know, when we think five years ago, we were just going, can we just see a little bit of multiplication? And it's still just a little but it's it's just been huge having that time to come together and realize we're we're not alone and then just seeing the guys have gravitated to the vision of no place left and it's just creating a holy discontent with the status quo so anyhow the, the mid levels i can't emphasize that they've just been uh huge for us and um the other big thing is everything we've done in the US has been in swarms so swarm training, swarm mid-levels uh, have been huge. Okay. And Jeff, let me just ask you before we sign off. When, you, when you're talking about doing a mid-level, you're, you're essentially talking about bringing guys and gals from different cities together. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. We try and get people so that they're people are maybe use a different methodology, different city, so they can come together and learn together in community. There's not really, it's not really meant to be a guru downloads on people, but we learn together from the Word of God through the Holy Spirit. And